Welcome to QSMU, where we share inspiring stories and ideas, helping you to find a lifestyle true to yourself. Welcome, my name is Freddie Saliba, and this is episode four. Today we talk about teaching English in China, teaching English online, and a little bit on blogging and becoming a digital nomad, location independence. Let's get into it. I'd like to welcome Rachel from Grateful Gypsies, who, with her husband, has been traveling around in different forms for the past 10 years or so, from working uh, the music festival biz to working in China, teaching English, and also a bit of nannying at one point, uh, to now living the digital nomad life with her husband, Sasha, by teaching English online uh, and writing for their blog, The Grateful Gypsies. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, well, yeah, you've had such an incredible journey over your travel journey, but you haven't always started with that teaching idea. You were initially, you majored in, in music industry studies um, right. and were working towards becoming a tour band manager or something similar. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of got you into that? Well, I come from a musical background. I started playing piano when I was six years old. And then I started playing the trumpet when I got to middle school and continued to play both of them all the way through to the end of high school. I was in the marching band, total band nerd, all of it. Every week at one point in high school, I had a trumpet lesson, a piano lesson, and a voice lesson. And at that point in time, my dream was to be a singer-songwriter. I was going to be the next Elton John. Um, but... I struggled to play piano and sing at the same time. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't really be a singer-songwriter if you can't do those things. Um, so then it got time to me for me to go to university, and I had to choose a major. And there was absolutely nothing else that I was interested in besides music. But I didn't want to do music performance or music education because... At that time, I was convinced that I didn't want to teach, and I didn't think I had it in me to be a performer. So I went with music therapy first. Uh, and the primary reason why I went with music therapy was so that I could go to the university of my choice. Um, the university of my choice was not in the state where I was a resident. And in the US, paying tuition for a school in a state that you're not a resident of is really expensive. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had to have a really good reason to go to this university that was in a different state, even though it was only like an hour and a half drive from my hometown. It was still in a different state. And the way I was able to convince my parents to let me do this was to choose this major because this major was not an option at any of the universities in my state. I'm from Tennessee, and the school that I went to was in North Carolina. So that's how I got to go to the school of my choice. But then I did one semester of music therapy and realized very quickly that that wasn't for me. So the other plus about my school of choice was that they had a music industry studies program. And so I thought, oh, I like going to concerts. That sounds cool. I'll do that. Because it was basically a music major with a business minor. I still had to play my instruments. Um, be in an ensemble, take music theory classes, music history classes, all that stuff. And then I had music business classes mixed into all that. Like how, did, how did you go from that to the idea of the touring and the internship as well? Well, my dream was really always to travel. 
Um, but at this time, like the term digital nomad wasn't like a hot buzzword. I'd never even heard it before. I thought that the only way I was going to be able to travel was if I had a job that I had to travel for and a band manager or a tour manager, they have to do a lot of that. So that's just was kind of my naive thinking was, oh, if I do that job, then I'll just get to travel all the time. So I had to do an internship to finish my degree. It was part of my requirements to actually finish my university degree. And by the time I was ready to graduate, I had fallen in love with going to music festivals. And by that point, that was all I wanted my life to be. I had this dream idea for my own music festival. And so I wanted my internship to, to be involved with festivals. And there was this company at the time that their prime thing that they did was put together groups of volunteers at music festivals where, where they would work in exchange for a ticket. And it was called the WET team, work exchange team. So I did that several times when I was in college, um, worked for them as a volunteer so that I could go to the festival f for free or by volunteering a little bit of my time, which I thought was really cool because then I got to see both sides of the music festival, both as someone working there and as just a fan who was attending. So that company that put together the volunteers, I asked if they had an internship program. And I think at that time they had only had a couple of interns, like they had just started their internship program. So I did my internship in the summer of 2008 and it primarily consisted of doing like street team and promotions work for different bands and promotion companies that, that they signed on as clients. But then my primary job was to travel around to the different music festivals and supervise all the different groups of volunteers. And that's how I met Sasha. Um, Sasha was a volunteer and I was supervising him. Your, your story definitely intertwines with Sasha's in terms of travel and everything. You met him and just before he was going to China. Right. He had also just graduated from university and didn't have a plan. And so one of his friends had told him that teaching English in China was cool. And so he said, OK, I'll give it a shot. And since you really just met, you just kept in contact on all the social medias. And was was that about the time you ended up looking for jobs? Is that correct? Kind of. What, what were you doing during that time? During that time he was in China, I did not manage to line up a job from my internship, but you know, that wasn't necessarily because of me, that was because of the awful economy. This was in 2008 when the economic crisis really came to a head in the US and so there were no jobs for anyone. So I finished my internship and then just went home. It was just my mom at home and she was like, yeah, yeah sure, come back, you know figure it out, hang out. So I went back home and moved back in with mom and just, you know, got a job working as a waitress in a restaurant, like a job that didn't matter. And I spent all of my free time, but I did that on purpose so that I could spend all of my free time um, traveling around to nearby cities, just going where the music was. And oh, I made a whole bunch of new friends doing that internship. I essentially found my tribe. And so um, a lot of them lived not too far away from my hometown. They lived within a four or five hour drive. So I spent all my free time just following the music and going to see those friends pretty much. So then Sasha ended up coming back because of the 
the band the fish the fish thank you <laughs> fish with a ph p-h-i-s-h yes way i read it was quite interesting he said that the only reason he'll come back was for that and then bam they were touring that's what he said when he left for china he was planning on going for a year and he said the only thing that will bring me back sooner is if fish gets back together because they were a huge touring band in the 90s into the early 2000s when they broke up and they had their final music festival they were never going to play a concert together again uh, and they were not a band for five years. They were not a band when Sasha and I met. But I guess there were rumors that they were talking to each other and might be getting back together, which is why Sasha said that in the first place. It wasn't totally unfounded. Yeah. Um, but sure enough, to, he left for China in August. And then in October, they announced their comeback tour. So we made all these plans. And I thought maybe we would see, like two maybe three concerts that summer we ended up with like tickets to 13 concerts that summer and pretty much spent the entire summer of 2009 10 whole years ago now uh living out of my car and tents and on french friends couches going to music festivals and fish concerts were you volunteering with any of those as well or we we volunteered at a couple of the music festivals but no we um for the fish concerts no we just bought tickets was it after that you went back to was it nashville so after that big tour of just seeing music nonstop, we were like okay what do we do next and sasha was ready to just go back to china in fact he'd left a bunch of stuff there and i was like you know, like I have this degree and I was really excited about working in the industry and I feel like I should at least try. I should at least try to get a job, if nothing else, to prove to myself and my family that it's just not possible right now. So I'm from East Tennessee and we had a ton of friends, mutual friends in Nashville, Tennessee. So it was like a safe place to go where we had friends we could rely on and, and friends with extra rooms who let us crash. And I did everything I was supposed to do. I bought a nice pantsuit and I, you know, got my resume all fixed up and printed out a bunch of copies and walked around Music Row in Nashville passing out my resume in person and went to networking lunches and volunteered at industry conferences and events and even paid to go to some networking events. And it was pretty, pretty miserable. It was not really what I wanted to be doing. It was just what I felt like I had to be doing. All the while, my friends who we were living with, we were actually in Murfreesboro, which is this, you know, not so great town south of Nashville. They were all still in school. So they were all hamming it up, you know, having a good old time as they should have been. I just, in my mind, thought that I was ready to, to move past that. And so nothing panned out. The one interview that I finally got that was for an entry level position, I didn't get because, you know, someone who had held a higher position in the industry who had been laid off got that job because he had experience. I was ready to leave at that point. I was like, okay, this isn't working out. Sasha really wanted to go back to China. And I was like, cool, let's give it a shot. But I was determined to make that plane ticket money myself. So I was yet again waiting tables. Sasha managed to get a job for a month uh, and was told that they were going to have hours for him the next month. And then at the last minute, they were like, no, we have nothing for you. It was just miserable. We were on food stamps because we couldn't afford food. We, had our, we were asking our parents for uh, money to pay our $200 a month rent. Then our house got robbed and then my car got robbed and <laughs> it was bad. 
Just hitting rock bottom, sort of. Literally, Murphy's Law. Everything was going wrong. And so at that point, I just finally gave up my pride and said, Mom, please get me out of here. I'll pay you back someday. <laughs> and Sasha did the same thing. And so our families were nice enough to buy our flights to get us over to China. You both went over to Be- Beijing, China, ended up for three years. Three and a half years in Beijing, yeah. Okay. And did you find a job quite easily? I had a job lined up before we even got there because Sasha knew all of the best websites for finding jobs in Beijing. And so he got on and started looking around and we found a job for me working as a private tutor for a family who lived out in the suburbs. But this wasn't just any family. He worked in the medical industry making machines, fancy machines that they use in hospitals. So They lived out in the suburbs and their house was four stories and had an elevator in it. They already had one nanny. So I was basically just a glorified English speaking nanny. Their private driver would drive almost to the center of Beijing, pick me up, drive me to their house. I would tutor one girl for two hours and I was basically just helping her with her homework. They went to an English speaking international school. So it was all, you know, curriculum that I was familiar with. So I was basically just helping her with her homework and then they would feed me dinner and then I would work with the little girl for uh, the younger sister for an hour and then they would drive me back to my apartment and that was my job. That's what I did four days, five days a week. (laughs) And did you do that the, the whole time you were there, the three and a half years? No, no. That was just how I started making money immediately. I got there in March and I only did that for the rest of the school year, which was until the end of June. And so about two months in, I started kind of applying for other part-time jobs. So I was doing like the private tutoring job and then slowly easing into life in China and then started applying for other part-time jobs. So uh, that summer I was doing part-time like two days a week in a kindergarten and then I got a job at a summer camp. And then from there I just, for the rest of that calendar year, that first year I was in China, that's all I did. I was basically like a freelance ESL teacher. I would just, I just stacked a bunch of different short-term part-time jobs on top of each other. And after doing that for a year, then we finally applied for jobs with like a corporate training center who would sponsor our work visas and give us benefits and all that stuff. Did you need any qualifications with teaching English? It depends on the different jobs. the, The demand in China for native English speakers far exceeds the demand. So Yes, there are a lot of like jobs that would prefer you to have qualifications, but there are many that are just so desperate. I mean, they'll just take what they can get. And the fact that you had also a degree. That makes a big difference. Many jobs just consider that a huge qualification. So even if you don't really have a ton of teaching experience, as long as you have a degree, it doesn't even matter what it's in then that already qualifies you for a lot of things. Did you get much of a culture shock being over there? Probably not as great as some people. I mean, yes, it was different, but I was also prepared from hearing Sasha's stories and just things that he had told me in the lead up to us going there together. What sort of things would that, that have been? Different food, eating with chopsticks. That That's weird for a lot of people. I had never eaten with chopsticks before I went to China, but it's kind of like one of those things you have to figure it out unless you want to be hungry. <laughs> squatty potties. Uh, that was a, that was a big adjustment. I had never had to use squatty potties on a consistent basis before I went to China. I think just kind of the way that Chinese people just kind of speak to each other in general. 
in Western cultures, we're very like polite and we use like kind of flowery language, a lot of words. We're not ever very direct. We kind of like tell things to people in like a roundabout way in order like to be sensitive to people's feelings and stuff like that. And Chinese people are just direct. <laughs> They're very direct. They really don't hold back. So that was kind of an adjustment. And also workplace culture is very different in China. The whole like gaining and losing face is also extremely prevalent in Chinese society and culture at large. And it pretty much dictates everything in China, the way they deal with each other and, you know, just everyday interactions. And so if there's an issue in the workplace, like if they're not happy with your performance, they're, they're not going to tell you. You just kind of have to figure it out on your own. <laughs> like I had one job that I was doing where it was just, you know, part time. I was just like the fun English teacher and I would go around to different classes. And so I wasn't one, one class of students would see me one day a week. I was teaching five days a week, but you know, five different classes. Um, and it turned out that they were not pleased with my lessons or the teaching methods or anything like that. And I asked them so many times, like, are you happy with what I'm doing? Is there anything you want me to change? And every time they were like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Until one day my boss called me up and was like, sorry, you don't have this job anymore. We replaced you because they didn't like you. And it turns out that's like normal in Chinese culture. If they don't like what you're doing, they're not going to say anything to you and even flat out lie to your face when you ask them because of the whole losing face thing. They don't want to make you lose face. To them, it's better to just call you up one day and say, oh, you don't need to come anymore because we replaced you instead of actually like giving you tips and things that you can do to improve so that you meet their standards. So that was probably that was probably the biggest difference for me to kind of cope with. How, how do you know that you're not doing well? Well, I guess really what it was is that <laughs> if you're working illegally, which really at the core, that's what I was doing, you don't really have a whole lot of ground to stand on. But when you are working legally, the company that you work for is responsible for your work visa. They own your work visa. And it's, it's a whole lot of paperwork for them to fire you. So in those situations, they're more likely to give you tips and pointers and tell you if they don't like it. But in, in an illegal situation where they have a bunch of other teachers lining up to work illegally, that is far more likely to happen. Did you find that language was a big thing? Obviously you're teaching English, but yes, not in work, outside work. Language barrier was huge because this goes back to the whole like losing and saving face. Chinese people are so fearful of losing face, getting embarrassed that even if they can speak English, they won't for that reason, because they're terrified of making a mistake and losing face. So if you wanted to live a less stressful life and be less frustrated on a daily basis, you pretty much had to learn at least the basics of like how to speak Chinese, you know, basic commands, how to ask for things, how to ask for price, how to, ask, how to order food. Um, but also for me, how to control the kids, because there were a lot of those jobs where I was supposed to have an assistant, a Chinese assistant to help with the discipline. But most of the time I didn't. So <laughs> I got to the point where I could speak fluent classroom Chinese. I could tell them to sit down, open their book, read yeah. this, look <laughs> at that. You know, I could do that very well eventually. Was that more just through day to day learning or did you take any courses? Um, Sasha taught me a little bit before we went 
because he took Chinese lessons the whole time he was there in his first year. So he taught me a little bit. And then that first summer that I was there, I ended up not having a job in August. That was just how it worked out because I was just, you know, freelance teaching at the time. So I decided to just focus on learning Chinese that month and signed up for a group class, a group class of me and one other person. So it was almost like private lessons. And I went four days a week. And, you know, it was the only thing I was doing at the time. It was the only thing I was focusing on. So my my speaking abilities improved really quickly. I never learned how to read or write it, but I never felt like I needed that. I just needed to be able to communicate and be understood. Absolutely. Especially in the classroom or on the streets. Yes. So. During the time when you were in Beijing, were you able to travel a bit as well? Oh, yeah. We did a ton of traveling. Um we would take advantage of any vacation and they have a lot of um, like long weekend types of vacations in China. Um, and so also you can take a train pretty much anywhere in China. They're, the whole country is pretty well connected by rail. Um, so we went all kinds of places within China and then we would use the longer holiday holidays like uh, Chinese New Year to travel further to other countries, primarily around Southeast Asia. Did you have a favorite place that you visited while you were there? Well, I mean, I loved all of the traveling that we did within China because, you know, once you get past the, you know, smoggy, crowded megacities, China is actually a really beautiful country with a lot of history and just really interesting culture. And so I really enjoyed all the traveling that we did around China. But I think probably... Thailand and Laos will always hold a very special place in my heart because that was those were the countries where we did our first ever month-long backpacking trip where we learned how to go do the go with the flow spontaneous style travel where you just show up without a plan and figure it out and and so I think it's safe to say that that's where we were officially bitten by the travel bug that was when you did your your gap year after the three and a half years so that first month-long trip in Thailand and Laos was just during Chinese New Year. So we, just, we had a long break in the middle of the school year, and we wanted to go somewhere warm because winter in Beijing is miserable. Uh, so, so we only did that for a month. And then that we had been in China for – it was less than a year at that point. I want to say we'd been there for about eight months, eight or nine months by that point. So for the next two years – the longest trip we did was six weeks. Um, and then when we started our jobs in the corporate training center, we were not able to travel for such long periods of time because it was easy to work out um, paid travel, actually, at that corporate training center. But, you know, it could only be for so much time. I think like the longest we got to travel anywhere while we worked there was two weeks. So we just did a lot of those really short trips. Like we went to Japan for five days. We went to Mexico for two weeks. We went and backpacked around southern China for two weeks. And then we went to Bali for 10 days. And then while we were in Bali, that was the first time we'd ever been there. It was actually the first time when, when at least Sasha was like, why, wait, why do we have to go back to Beijing? And I was like, well, because we have jobs in an apartment. And he's like, well, what if we didn't have those things? And that was kind of where the idea for the gap year trip was born. And we set off for that about a year, no, less than a year later. So that was in October. We did that trip to Bali. And then we 
quit our jobs and left and set out on a 14 month long gap year trip in August of the next year. So we just went back to Beijing and made a plan and started saving and budgeting and um, and then, yeah, just made it happen. Was that primarily in Southeast Asia, the gap year? Primarily, but initially we went back to the States and we just spent three straight months in the States seeing music, catching up with friends, catching up with family, because in three and a half years in Beijing, we the, the longest we were able to come home was only six weeks. So um, we came back and we did a lot of backpacker style travel across the States. Like we went to a lot of national parks out in the Southwest in Utah, Arizona. We saw a lot of music in California. We went to a lot of places we'd never been before. And then we went back over and then backpacked Southeast Asia for seven months, seven, eight months, and then went back into China and did some backpacking around Southeast China for another three weeks. And then we moved to Kunming, which is in Yunnan province, and that province borders Vietnam, Laos, and Myanmar. So it's way down there in the southwest of China. We moved to the capital city, it's called Kunming. We went there and got our apartment and got set up, and then I found a job and realized that they weren't going to need me to start for another two and a half, three weeks. So then we did another mini backpacking trip around just that province of China, because it's really, honestly, the best part of China for backpacking, in, in my opinion. And how was the culture difference from Kunming to Beijing? Way more laid back, way more laid back. So Beijing, it's the capital of China. And at least for people who live in North China, if, if you can move to Beijing, that's kind of like you've made it. That's like the ultimate goal. It's like how a lot of people in the States have a, uh, like a goal to move to New York City or L.A. or just, you know, one of those big cities. It's kind of the same sort of mentality. And everyone is just go, 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 go. Like I, and a lot of that, like, it's very like time is money in Beijing. So that really doesn't exist in Kunming. It's a way slower pace of life. Kunming is known as a spring city because they say it, uh, the weather is like spring all year round, which is mostly true. It gets cold in the winter and like, Chile, they don't really have indoor heating, so it's just, it's colder inside than it is outside. But the weather is really nice for the most part. People are really friendly. They're much more willing to help you out. And it has way more of a Southeast Asian vibe than a Chinese vibe. So you'll find a lot of Chinese people with dreadlocks, listening to Bob Marley, stuff like that. So you end up being there for a year before Sasha decided to go and do the Damasiswa program? Yeah, it's pretty good. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> The Dharma Siswa program in, in Bali. So this is a program done by the um, Indonesian government to try and bring awareness to Indonesian culture. So, for example, China has the Confucius Institute where they have these Confucius institutions all across the world teaching Chinese culture and history and all that. And they spread it. They spread it out around the world. And so it's the same idea, except they're just bringing people to the country. So it's a free program that pays you a monthly stipend. And it's all over Indonesia. It's not only in Bali. But obviously, um, everybody wants to go to Bali. So it's one of those programs where when you apply, you either have to say, I don't care where I go, you can place me, or you have to specify one place. Uh, and we found out about this program because one of our good friends who had been living in Beijing did this program. That was the whole reason why we went to Bali the first time was to visit him. 
And Sasha loves learning languages. He's one of those people that just picks up on languages really fast. You know, he put a lot of effort into learning Chinese. And then he was like, cool, I'm going to go study Indonesian. Because in this Dharma Siswa program, you can study the language or like dance, uh, especially in Bali, the Balinese dance is much different than around the rest of Indonesia, or you can earn, learn like the arts, shadow puppet or, you know, weaving, stuff like that. So Sasha went with the language. So we stayed in Bali for a school year and he applied while we were living in Kunming. And it's one of those things where you have to apply like at the beginning of the year, around like February, and then they don't tell you until May or June. <laughs> and then you have to go at the end of August. So it's one of those things you kind of have to be like really flexible. And when we moved to Kunming, that was, you know, the first time in our lives that we didn't have an onward plan. We were just kind of like, okay, we're going to go to Kunming and just, you know, see what happens from there, figure it out. And he's like, well, since we don't have a plan, I'll just go ahead and apply. And um, he did and he got accepted. And what did you do during that time? You obviously joined. So I got a job in Kunming and Sasha did not at first. At first he was just focusing on his freelance writing um, and just like working from home and doing that. And eventually he got bored working at home and realized that he needed to be around people. So he just found a really short term, super flexible job. I was on a contract. My school had my work visa. And if I finished my contract, I got a big bonus. So he applied in February. And then we went back that summer and got married. And then we spent a few weeks in the States after that. And then we went back to Kunming and Sasha only stayed for like two and a half weeks because then he had to go on and be there for the orientation at the end of August. My contract didn't end until October. So I stayed for about another six to eight weeks, I think it was in Kunming to finish out my contract so I could get that bonus because it was the same as a month's salary, which goes a long way in Bali. If you know how to live like a local in Bali, you can make your money stretch for a while. So, so then I joined him in Bali in October and we had done quite a bit of research leading up to moving there and learned that it's really hard for foreigners to get a job there because everyone would love to go work in Bali, right? So they have all these rules in place to make that really hard to do because they want those jobs to go to the local people, rightfully so. And there's not as big of a market to learn English, primarily because of the economic situation. Like Bali is still a pretty impoverished part of the world for the amount of tourism it receives. It's, it's really kind of shocking how impoverished a lot of people still are there. And so they just they don't have the economic situation to learn English. So that's really not a thing there. We had launched our blog by this point. We did that right before we set off on our big gap year trip thinking that we were going to blog along the way and maybe get free hostel stays and stuff like that. And we were so wrong. It is really hard to blog while you're traveling full speed ahead. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that sounds easy, right? Um, so we really didn't put a whole lot of effort into our blog because we were, you know, we were traveling full speed ahead on that gap year trip. And then we got back to China and immediately went back to work and didn't have time for it. Then, that same summer we got married, 2015, we bought the Paradise Pack. For those who haven't heard about the Paradise Pack, this is a bundle sale for people who want to become location independent, like Rachel. It is a sale that is offered by 
the guys at Location Indie uh, once a year for one week and they change it up every year. You can check that out at locationindie.com or theparadisepack.com. I got it this year as well and would really recommend it for anyone interested in becoming location independent themselves. And inside the Paradise Pack that year was a course about blogging. And Sasha had been blogging for a while as freelance, as a freelance writer. So he already knew how to use WordPress and, and you know, everything that goes into blogging. And I knew nothing, absolutely nothing. Completely new to the idea of writing. Like I thought of blogging in the same way as writing a university essay paper, you know, big paragraphs and you know, all the writing rules, it couldn't be any more different. So we got this course and we kind of decided, okay, we did well enough in this year to just go to Bali and live on savings. Sasha's really good at making a budget. But we weren't totally living on savings. He got a, a small stipend from the Dharma Cecil program and then he was still doing his freelance writing. So we had a little bit of income, but not quite enough for both of us. So we decided, okay, we'll just be really smart with our money and we'll live on savings. And I just focused all my time and energy on doing that blogging course and just figuring out how to grow our blog and turn it into a business. Did you have to deal with visas or was a tourist visa enough? I had to deal with visas. Sasha got a residence permit from the university, which is like the most desirable situation you can have in Bali. But you can only get that if you're a student or if you're retired or if you're married to a Balinese person. Otherwise, they don't really have long-term visas in Bali. So we kind of figured out some trick for me. So I went in on a visa on arrival, which you have to pay for. But the good thing about that is it can be extended. Nowadays, if you just want to visit Bali, you can go in on a stamp for free for 30 days, but that can't be extended. When those 30 days are up, you got to go. But the visa on arrival can be extended for another 30 days with a trip to the immigration office. So I stayed the first two months that way. Then I found a sponsor to get the sociocultural visa, which will allow you to stay for up to six months but you need a local person to be your sponsor and to write a letter and say why you're there. And then you have to go get that visa elsewhere. So I flew to Singapore to get that visa and then came back to Bali. And then that gives you an initial 60 day stay. Then that visa can be extended for 30 days at a time, four times. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's six months total, but for four months in a row, I had to go spend three days at the immigration office. So, I mean, I could have paid an agent to do it for me, but I had all the time in the world. So it's a trade-off. It's like you either spend your own time doing it or you pay someone to spend their time doing it. What was the reason the local gave you on, on the, the visa? Do you remember? I was there for educational purposes. My husband was doing the Dharma Cecil program and then yeah. teaching me what he learned about the culture. I just wonder how, how strict they are. You know, it's kind of all about the connections that your sponsor has. And the woman who was my sponsor, that was her job. She was a visa. She wasn't an agent. Um, because it was just her kind of doing it on her own and she had made friends with people in the immigration office and so that's really kind of how it worked. It was all based on connections. From that, how did you end up transitioning to the digital nomad? I mean, you obviously started getting the blog up and running so it was 
a little bit there. Was teaching English online something that you've been thinking of for a while? Well, I knew it was a thing because one of Sasha's brothers started doing it while Sasha and I were still in China. And he was still in university in the States. And so he started teaching online. And so that's how I knew that it was a thing. And so when I got to Bali, um, I spent a lot of time looking for online teaching jobs. And there's actually uh, an English first center in Bali. And I actually applied for and was offered a job there. But it was, it was their online teaching program, which I could have done there in the center or I could have done from home, but the pay was very, very low. <laughs> like I, I would have made more working at a McDonald's in the States low. And you know, not that that's bad, money is money. But at the time we had so many visitors while we were in Bali. In the eight or nine months that we were there, we had like 20 friends and family come and visit us. So. I decided that I wanted to keep all my time free for all my friends and family that were coming to visit. Had we not had so many visitors, maybe I would have taken their offer. But just based on our circumstances and that we decided that we weren't going to stay past Sasha's program, I decided to just keep my time for myself. And then I was still just kind of looking around on the internet just to see what I could find. And then one day I saw, uh, I was in a Facebook group a Facebook group that I found out about through the Paradise Pack. It wasn't Paradise Pack related, but it was about just like traveling and remote work and some stuff like that. And someone posted uh, something about VIP Kid and how they were looking for teachers and, and said that they were based in China and that you'd be teaching Chinese kids. And I was like, oh, I have experience doing that. Let me look into it. And I did. And it honestly sounded too good to be true. But... I was fully qualified. I met all of their requirements. And so I thought, oh, I'll apply and see what happens. And I finished filling out the application and sent it in at night. It was like 11 o'clock at night or something like that. And I woke up the very next morning, like 9 a.m. with an email inviting me for an interview. So it happened really fast. And was that like a full-time or part-time? At the time, it, it was part-time, but VIP Kid was just starting to grow. They've really grown exponentially since then, and, and I feel like pretty much anyone who has any interest in working online has heard about VIP Kid at this point. But really, nobody knew who they were, and so they were kind of set on it being a part-time job for people. But then as they grew, and they hired so many teachers and got many, so many students on board, they needed people to do it more full-time. But that's hard to do when you're on this side of the world. If we had stayed in Bali, it would have been easy to do it full time because you're in the same close to the same time zone. You're at least having classes at the same time of day. But here, unless you want to go nocturnal and work all night, it's really hard to do it full time. Is it more the better pay jobs that are in Asia or is it that there is more demand in the Asia time zone? Um, it's a little bit of both. It's partly due to just their economy right now. East Asia in general, especially in like China and Korea, they're having a big middle class boom right now. People are finding themselves with a bit of disposable income and learning English is seen as, as highly valuable and, and also high status. So at least in China, it goes back to that whole face thing. Like if you can take English online or in person with a native English speaker, it's, it's like a status symbol. And so it's partly that and it's also just partly because a lot of their 
technological advancements in Asia. And there's a lot of a lot a whole lot of advancements in technology going on over there. So that's created this big boom in online learning. Those are two of the factors, but then a third factor is because of the success of VIP Kid. A lot of other people, especially within China, saw that success because ever since VIP Kid started pushing to grow, when I found them in 2016, they've grown exponentially year after year after year after year. And and they're still continuing to grow and expand and they're trying they're planning to be in, you know, they want to be in 100 countries in the next like couple of years and they've even launched a few other product lines under like the VIP kid umbrella and a lot of people noticed this and so saw that there was a demand to learn English online and so a lot of other companies that are essentially VIP kid copycats have sprouted up creating this huge opportunity for a lot of people who would like to teach English online So what what would be the big besides being in person versus online is there a big difference in the teaching structure There is a difference between what their method is and the traditional classroom method but for me I was already familiar with this method it's called the flipped classroom method where the students study the material before the class so they get introduced to the grammar concepts the vocabulary and they get to practice it a little bit like they get introduced to it so then when they get in the classroom they're more likely to succeed because they're already familiar and they're just building on what they've already learned whereas in a traditional classroom model students would go in to class having not been introduced to the class material at all it's all brand new and it's a lot to comprehend and digest at once you know everyone learns differently everyone has a different learning style and learning preference and in the traditional classroom model there were a lot of kids who just maybe didn't learn as much or maybe didn't participate as much because it's just it was a method that didn't work for them but through a lot of studies educational institutions have found that the flipped classroom works much better because the students are more excited to learn they're more likely to participate because they're already familiar with the material and that is the method that they used at the corporate training center where we were teaching in Beijing and then that's the same method that VIP kid uses and the other great thing about it is that they make all of the lessons themselves and that's something that a lot of these online English teaching companies do they create the lessons then all you need to do as the teacher is familiarize yourself with those lessons and execute them of course you can kind of put your personal flair on it and then you can make it exciting by bringing different props and things like that with you to class but the main idea is that any teacher can teach the students because the students are getting the same curriculum and the same kind of class structure no matter who's teaching it and it creates a lot more flexibility for the parents and the students that way and even for the teacher and these students is it more is it an extracurricular thing yes it's definitely an extracurricular thing this is almost just kind of like a fun extra english practice thing that they get to do when they go home and on the weekends it has nothing to do with their normal school the students would they be doing classes more like once a week obviously varies a little bit yeah it varies student to student there are some students who have class 3 days a week there are some students who only do it one day a week maybe on the weekend sometimes two and then there are students who might have class every other week or once a month and would they vary between teachers as well depending who's available 
Well, as far as VIP kid is concerned, the parents or, you know, and their kids choose their teacher. So they can go on and they can see all the teachers and their profiles and they get to choose which one they want. However, there are some companies that have a different method. And for those companies, the company matches the students with teachers. Um, and then you have a fixed schedule. You will teach that student for, you know, whenever you're available for a certain amount of time, usually about three months or for the duration of your contract, which is six months for the most part. And that really just all depends on the student and on the teacher. Like there are some teachers who would prefer that. There are some teachers who would prefer teaching the same students week after week so they can actually see their progress and get to know them a bit and figure out how they learn best. And then, you know, there are some students who prefer that as well. And what I've noticed is that the difference in these jobs are that jobs like VIP Kid, where the parents are choosing the teachers, it's more flexible for the teachers. There's no minimum requirement. I can open or not open as many or as few classes as I want to. However, there are very strict penalties against canceling and you know, not showing up for class or like canceling at the last minute. They have really strict policies in place for that. But these other companies that assign the students with the teachers, they give the teachers more flexibility. You know, you're able to cancel more easily and there are less punishments for cancellations. So it's kind of like a give and take. Do you want to be able to have a more flexible schedule or and, and a strict cancellation policy? Or do you want to have a less strict cancellation policy and, you know, have a less flexible schedule where you have to have the same fixed teaching times week after week. And so that's really the biggest difference between a lot of these jobs. How far in advance do you have to like write your schedule or make your availabilities? So the parents can only book <laughs> classes like a week out. For example, right now, all of my classes for this week, the week of the, today is June 17th. So this week, um, all my classes are already booked. And then for the following week, all my classes are booked. Um, but for the week of July, now there's a motorcycle. For the week of July 1st, that opens up to parents one week before. So this Monday on the 24th, parents will be able to book for the following week of the 1st. Now, as a teacher, you can go in and open up your time slots for every time that you know you're going to be available that you plan to teach. And the parents can see that. They can go and look at your schedule and they can see all the class times that you have open for the next month. And that shows them that you are a stable, reliable teacher. And that's something that I always tell people they should go ahead and do because that means that the parents are more li likely to book your class right now because they see that you're going to be available later. But they cannot book that far in advance. Makes sense. Going back to a bit of the, the travel and digital nomad side of things, how was the transition in the style of travel when you started doing this work? Uh, we really had to put the brakes on. <laughs> it's, it's really different because when we were doing our gap year trip, the only work either of us had to do was Sasha's freelance writing, and that's it. And that's something that can be done anytime, any place, just as long as you meet your deadlines. But with teaching online, it's a completely different beast because you book classes and then you have to show up at that time. And you also need to be in a quiet place. Like it's really 
really frowned upon to be doing your classes, you know, from a cafe or, you know, any public place that's not quiet. It needs to resemble a classroom setting. So because of the fact that we want to be on this side of the world, we're in Mexico, um, with the time difference, our classes are really early in the morning. And so that's one of the main reasons why we really had to slow down our travel style because we're not morning people. <laughs> we like to stay up late and sleep in late and you know, we like to go out and enjoy nightlife wherever we're visiting. And so we realized that we even a week in one place isn't long enough because we've decided that your travel is, is split up into three different categories. You have, or as a digital nomad anyways, you have work time, sightseeing time, and what we call social time which that can be anything from enjoying nightlife to like dinner or any, any form of entertainment, concert shows, any of that. And it's really hard to do all three in a day, especially when you know, your working time is teaching online. Because when you're teaching kids, you have to be really animated, excited, and energetic in order to keep their attention. And doing that for three hours straight can get a bit intensive and kind of mentally draining. And so, you know, trying to do all three of those things, work, sightsee, and enjoy, you know, social activities in a day is exhausting. So you really have to stay in a place for longer to make sure that you get to do all of those things in a way that you're not burning yourself out. How would you strategize that certain days for work, certain days for these other activities, or just extending the time out and doing less? For us, it works better to stay in places longer. Like, I'm starting to come to the realization that even a month in a place isn't really enough time because the more work you have to do, the more you kind of need a routine. And that's unfortunately what I realized really helps me be productive because you go into this lifestyle thinking, yes, no more routine. I can do what I want. But that really leads to a lot of, you know, kind of ambiguity. And then that leads to anxiety and stress. And that's kind of like the last thing you want. Like I did not become a digital nomad to be stressed out all the time. <laughs> so it's really just really just a whole lot of trial and error in figuring out a balance that's going to work for you. And I'm still figuring it out. Like it's still a work in progress. I was really excited about being able to choose my working days. And for the last several weeks, I've been taking Mondays off because I don't want to have a case of the Mondays and I, I like to do Sunday fun day. But going into July and August, when there's double the amount of teaching times available because the kids are on summer holiday, we're just going to do a Monday to Friday. And that's so we can have the same free time as our friends. And, you know, our friends, a lot of them here are also working online, but they still have a Monday to Friday schedule. So it's important to me to be able to spend time with my friends. And they are, most of them, working remotely, but for people on a schedule. So their free time is their free time. You know, it's all about finding that balance something I'm starting to do just as I'm getting into this life, trying to figure all, all that out. It's uh, hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. Because I was yeah traveling around like Peru and Bolivia and I started to figure out that I was wanting to do this, but it was just so difficult to try and do it while I was traveling. So yeah, that's why I've been so happy to sit sit still for a little while and focus on it, have a place to my own and then try and figure that balance out later uh, when I want to travel a bit, <laughs> how to do that. But it's a slow process, I think. It is. It's just one big experiment. You just have to keep trying different things to see what works. 
How have you found it going from place to place and meeting people, making friends uh, in different spots? At first, it was kind of hard because on our first gap year trip, we were just staying in hostels all the time. And it's super easy to meet people in hostels because that's they're very social places. They have events and parties and they make it really easy. Well, good hostels make it really easy for you to meet people. Uh, then when we started traveling while teaching online, we had to do only private Airbnbs because we're both teaching online at the same time and we're teaching like this and we're really excited, which is really obnoxious if you're just like trying to chill out and read a book. So I would, I would never teach from a hostel. So that was also a big adjustment going from being super, super social and I'm just very social in general to having to put forth extra effort to meet people in a place. But one of the ways we figured out uh, to do that is to go on free walking tours, you know, because they're free, they're budget friendly, and you get to meet a lot of really cool people who are also um, traveling. That's one way to do it. Also, cultivating friendships online, like finding Facebook groups that are people that are interested in the same thing as you, and then attending meetups. Now we just need to put extra effort into finding hostels that are doing events and then just go to those events even though we're not staying in the hostel. So, for example, in Medellin, Colombia, a lot of hostels have uh, language exchanges. So you can go and um, practice a bit of Spanish and help teach people some English, and you can meet people that way. There are actually a lot of different tricks to meeting people on the road. Those are just a couple of the ways that I've found. Just as you said, experimenting more and more, and as your life changes, so do all these tricks have to. Right. Now you also have a course that helps people teach English online I do. as well. I do. Just started that and still still got a lot of way to <laughs> go right. through it. But what initiated uh, that course? Well, I realized going back to what I was saying earlier that I noticed that there are a lot of VIP kid copycat companies out there. And I also realized that VIP kid or, um, you know, teaching English online for one of these companies set up in this way is a really great way to jumpstart your location independent or digital nomad lifestyle. And I'm, I'm saying, I'm speaking from my own experience because we left Bali and just went back to the States and didn't even have a plan. Like we thought that we were going to end up going to South America to find a new place to teach English in person, you know, maybe Brazil or somewhere like that. And then I found VIP kid. And the great thing about it is, you know, like I said, they make the lesson plans for you. So you don't have to spend a whole lot of time lesson planning. You just familiarize yourself with them. The um, classes are only 25 minutes each. Your schedule is totally flexible, at least with VIP kids. So if there are times where I'm going to be doing more like off the beaten path travel, like when we went down to Patagonia to go trekking, I just didn't open classes during that time. I didn't need to ask anyone for permission. I can just set a notice on my profile that says I'm not going to be available for 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 these days. Also, I don't need to worry about finding my own students. I don't have to market myself. The company does that. They bring in the students and then show the parents how to use their platform and then the parents book the teachers. So I don't have to worry about marketing myself. I don't have to worry about finding my own students and I don't have to worry about them paying me because the company takes care of all of that. I don't even need to communicate with the parents. If the parents have an issue, they go to the company and then the company deals with it. You know, a lot of things that you give up by kind of having a middleman, but there's also a whole lot more security that comes along with that. And so 
it's because we were both teaching for VIP Kid that we were able to go ahead and start traveling full time a lot more quickly than we would have otherwise if we had you know, taken the time to build up our own online business. It takes a while for your own ventures to actually like be successful and get to a place where you can just, you know, up and travel full time. But with teaching online, it frees up a whole lot of your time to work on your passion projects. So for me to work on the blog, for Sasha to work on his freelance writing, you have, you suddenly have all of this other time to focus on these things. So Teaching English online gives you financial security. It's flexible. It frees up a lot of time to work on other things. And it's very fulfilling. Like, I really enjoy, like, jumping on a video call with these cute little kids day after day and getting to know them because I have developed relationships with a lot of them. And I do have several regulars that I see week after week after week. And so we get to know each other and we talk about traveling and other things off topic from the class. And I realized that all of these other companies were sprouting up with the same teaching style and, and the same, you know, same idea. They make the lessons, they pay you on time, they bring in the students and realized that it would be a really good opportunity for people who teaching online would be a good fit for them. It's not for everyone. I always have to put that out there, like teaching online, teaching in general, it's not for everyone. But for people who do qualify and especially people who want to change their situation, who would maybe like to try living abroad, like in Mexico and Thailand or somewhere like that, or you know, people who want to travel full time, like me and Sasha, teaching English online is a really good way to jumpstart that lifestyle. So I created this course to introduce these companies to people, and I've spent a lot of time doing a ton of research uh, on these different companies and, and, you know, reading up on them and really studying their requirements and how flexible they are and reading reviews from other people online and talking to other people who work for these companies. And I think I've done a good job of figuring out which ones are the best or, you know, better than others. So this course is designed to show people that they do already have teaching experience. So I show people how to identify that I teach people all of the teaching techniques that these companies are looking for that will nail any interview that you have. And then um, I introduce you to all the different companies and help you choose which one would be best for you. And then from there, I um, teach the different strategies that we use to be able to have a great travel lifestyle while still earning a legit income and being able to pay our bills. And there is a bit of an art form to it. Like it, it is almost like a, a strategy. It's not kind of something that you can wing. Like I feel like there's a strategy to finding a good Airbnb. And I feel like there's a strategy to the way you book your classes and how to balance, um, you know, taking a week or two off and then going back to, you know, teaching for two weeks straight, you know, so there's kind of a strategy in all of that. And so, that's a lot of what I talk about after I introduce the teaching stuff. You've got the TEFL course that you recommend. You don't have to do it, but it's a recommendation. Or is that depending on the employer? A lot of, a lot of these companies that are based in China now require a TEFL course, and that is a new law per the Chinese government. These are not, it's not these companies. The Chinese government has stepped in and said, no, these people need to, to have a TEFL certification. Um, so that's now a requirement as of March of this year. 
And then there are several companies that do not require a degree, but they do require a TEFL certificate. So there are some companies you can get away with not having a TEFL certificate, but definitely if you don't have a bachelor's degree, you pretty much need a TEFL certificate. And you've got some recommendations on your website as well. I do. How long has it been since you've been teaching English online now it's, and been nomadic? I've been teaching with VIP Kid for three years, and I'd say, well, I mean, I feel like we've technically been nomadic all of that time, but when we left Bali, we went back to the States, and we were just in the States for seven months. So even though we were not staying stationary in one place in the States, I feel like it's a bit easier to be traveling while doing VIP Kid there because you're pretty much always guaranteed good internet and like a quiet space. So... Yes, we were nomadic. We were not international nomads, I'll put it that way. But since then, you've been to South America, Central America. Primarily for the last two years, we've been doing the full-time travel thing. After that, seven months back in the States, we busted it down to Mexico and pretty much took a bus from Atlanta all the way down to Monterey, Mexico, and did some traveling. We went to um, Monterey, Mexico City. San Miguel de Allende, Guanajuato, Guadalajara, and then ended up here in Puerto Vallarta. And that was when we realized, okay, we need to slow it down. Because <laughs> we were like, you know, teaching that whole time when we went to all of those places. And the longest we were staying was just one week. Um, and that was in the bigger cities. And so by the time we got here to Puerto Vallarta, we were just starting to feel so burned out that we ended up staying here. <laughs> um, when we first arrived here in Puerto Vallarta, we had only planned to stay for a month, but because we were so burned out, um, we decided to stay a little bit longer. But another reason why we decided to stay longer was because Sasha found out right before we left the States that he needed a root canal, and that's super expensive in the States. Like He was quoted $2,500 for everything for a root canal. Um, we found a dentist down here in Puerto Vallarta that he ended up paying only $550. So that's a considerable difference. Yeah, the difference in cost paid our rent here for six months. <laughs> and we had a little leftover for tacos. Uh, but another reason for that was because he ended up needing way more appointments to fix this tooth than he originally thought. So there's a number of reasons why we ended up staying here for as long as we did. But it's now become a temporary base, and this is our third summer in a row back here in Puerto Vallarta. And what's bringing you back there? It's just beautiful. Like, I'm sitting here talking to you right now while I'm also looking at the ocean. It's right over there. <laughs> well, I'm in my two jumpers, <laughs> and <laughs> you're in your T-shirt. And <laughs> um, it's just a really beautiful place, and the people are super friendly, and... Unlike other beach towns in Mexico, it has a very authentic Mexican vibe. It's, you know, worlds away from Cancun or Playa del Carmen. I've been to both of those places. And Puerto Vallarta is just safer. I think it's one of the safer coastal um, Mexican towns. And we have a little group of friends here. And, and you know, for me, that that's really more important than anything else, you know. I'm very social. I need to be around friends. I need them to be, you know, nearby if I need them. And so I don't need that 100% of the time, but I feel a lot happier 
knowing that there is a place in the world where I can go and have that for, you know, at least half the year if I want it. And it's good if you can set that up in different places as you travel, you can always go back there and... Right. What's your, your plan next? I know today you're talking about maybe you're going to Europe. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at digital nomad spots. Thinking about it, but we actually don't have a plan. <laughs> this calendar year has been one of the most unplanned ever for us, <laughs> which is good for a lot of reasons, but also bad because it can, you know, kind of make you anxious if you don't really know what you do, what you're doing. But we're going to be here in Puerto Vallarta for sure until the end of August. Then we're going to go back to the States. We're going to go to Denver Labor Day weekend so we can see Fish, our favorite band. And we have a lot of friends who live there in Denver. And then from Denver, it's a big question mark. I don't know. We might go to Europe for the fall. We might just come back here. <laughs> yeah, you never know. I'm not really sure yet. Do you have any plans eventually to like settle down and make roots? Or you still just think you'll be nomadic for a long while or have no idea? I really don't know. You know, so sometimes I get to a point where I'm like, you know what? Maybe it would be nice to just like have a place to come back to and... Not necessarily put down roots, but like have a place. Have a home base. Yeah, have a home base. Um, and last year I kind of got to that point and we actually did like an apartment hunt here in Puerto Vallarta and like found a place that would have fit in our budget that would have worked. But, you know, they wanted us to like sign a lease and pay a security deposit, which I haven't done in years. And so when it came straight down to it, I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> You know, it's like one of those things that like sounds nice until you actually go to do it. And then you're like, oh, no, wait, uh, no, 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 no. I don't know about no, that. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Work-wise, planning to, to keep going with the English online for, for a while or go more into the blogging and own business? I think my perfect situation would be earning enough through my projects on the blog to kind of sustain us a bit or at least like feel like that's what's paying the bills but then continue to teach online for fun because I really do enjoy teaching English and teaching English online. However, I get kind of burned out having it as my main source of income. I'd rather it be a side hustle. But that's just me and that's just kind of how I am. Um, and I think for someone, for, for someone else, like having VIP Kid as their main source of income could just be perfect. And honestly, sometimes I feel like if I weren't so just like determined to grow the blog and focus on that, I could just do VIP Kid and be okay. It's just here, the really early hours, the more I teach, kind of the less mental energy I have to focus on creating things on the blog. So if I were not, if I didn't have the blog, I would teach more classes and, and, you know, just do that. And I would just finish class in the morning and run down to the beach and hang out on the beach all day and just do that. But <laughs> I'm determined to grow the blog and keep that going. I just realized I haven't really spoken about too much about the blog. So I guess as a last little thing, if just talk about what exactly you, know, you do with the blog. Well, the blog is kind of just a, a mishmash of our lives. <laughs> um, but the main focus is teaching English as a means to travel. So we have a lot of content about teaching online. I've got a full post on VIP Kid and I just published a post about the best online English teaching jobs that introduced some of those 
other companies that I've been referring to. And then I also have a lot of articles about teaching abroad. So if you'd rather go teach in a country somewhere, we have a ton of info about teaching in China. I have an interview series where I've interviewed other people who have taught in other countries. So there's there's one about teaching in Thailand, Kazakhstan, Oman, Cambodia. So I have a lot of information about that. And I also have a lot of content about live music because that's our ultimate passion in life. That's how we met. That's what we spend our vacation days doing. So you can learn a lot about that through our content. And then there's a lot of content about places we've traveled to. And our tips for traveling to those places, we've traveled to like 20-ish countries together, I think. And we have content on quite a bit of them. So there's that. And then there's a lot of, well, not a lot, but then there's a touch of uh, personal blog articles that we just call musings, which are just kind of our thoughts on things. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up here. But do you want to just uh, mention whereabouts everyone can find you if they want to have a look? Sure. The blog is gratefulgypsies.com. Make sure you spell it right. It's G-R-A-T-E for grateful. It's not great. G-R-E-A-T. A lot of people make that mistake. I did that a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> totally normal yep. <laughs> totally normal. so gratefulgypsies.com is the blog and then we're also grateful gypsies on facebook instagram twitter pinterest and youtube the whole shebang we're pretty much everywhere you want to be well thank you so much for today yeah thanks for having me all right thanks freddie i hope you guys enjoyed that episode don't forget to check rachel and grateful gypsies out and if you enjoyed subscribe like us on Facebook at Curious Emu, Instagram, Curious.emu, or you can check out my journey as I travel around South America, Curious Freddy. Stay curious, guys.